Before we go into this week's message or our passage, I want to ask you a question. I'm wondering in your head and in your theology and in your experience, is there anyone outside of the saving power of God? Is there anyone too broken? Is there anyone too lost? Is there anyone too rebellious? Is there anyone too wicked for the reach of Jesus Christ? So I remember is that question that when I was growing up in a church, there's a period of time where that question dominated discussion. And it centered around a testimony of a man named Theodore Bundy. Ted Bundy was a serial killer who kidnapped and murdered numerous women and girls in the 70s. After many decades of denials, he finally confessed to 30 murders in 70 different, or seven, sorry, seven different states between 1974 and 1978. He was arrested in 78, convicted and sentenced to death in 1979. As a young man, I remember Dr. Dobson doing an interview with Ted Bundy, and it brought shockwaves within the Christian church. Here's a portion of that video. Ted, as you would imagine, there's tremendous cynicism about you on the outside, and I suppose for good reason. Uh, I'm not sure that there's anything that you could say that people would would believe, some people would believe. Yeah. And uh, and yet, you told me last night, and I've heard this through our mutual friend John Tanner, that you have uh, accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and are a follower and a believer in him. Do you draw strength from that as you approach these final hours? I do. I can't say that uh, being in the the valley of the shadow of death is is something that I've become all that accustomed to and that that I'm strong and uh, uh, nothing's bothering me. Uh, Listen, it's no fun. It's, Mm. it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, It gets kind of lonely, and yet I have to remind myself that every one of us uh, will go through this someday in one way or another, and and countless uh, millions who have walked this earth before us have. So this is just an experience which we all share. Yeah. Here I am. After watching that video, after knowing what you know about Ted Bundy, can Jesus save someone like that? Does Jesus save someone like that? After that video, I remember being in a church where people were skeptical. People were questioning. I can imagine that that was something similar to what happened within the early church after another alleged conversion, the conversion of a man named Saul. The conversion of Saul is one of those moments in church history that was transformational for their movement back then and still ought to be today. The conversion of Saul is such an important aspect in Scripture that it's mentioned numerous times and it's brought up three times just in the book of Acts. So what is it about the conversion of Saul? What is it about the conversion of Saul that impacted them so long ago? And what is it about the conversion of Saul? Why is it so important for us today? So I believe from this story, we can have confidence from conversion. Confidence in the power of God to save. Confidence in the power of the gospel to transform lives back then and still today. My hope this morning as you leave, you'll have greater confidence, not just for your life, 
but for lives of others through the confidence from conversion. If you have your Bibles, you join me in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If you don't know where it is at the right, just start in the middle, flip to the right. The more pages you flip, the more spiritual you look. It's incredible. By the way, this is our second Sunday in our new sermon guide. If you have not received a sermon guide and you want one, these are a place for you to keep a copy of your notes as well as have follow-up questions for you, your family, your coworkers, your small groups. If you have not picked one up yet, uh, you can raise your hand and one of our fantastic ushers will be happy to bring one to you. Raise them high because sometimes... They have a hard time seeing you, and just feel free to wave, whistle if you need. Uh, that's okay with me. Acts chapter 9, and it begins this way. Now, again, as we're entering into this text, you got to remember there's this great persecution going on in the middle of the church. In the midst of all this persecution, in the midst of all this struggle, the church is continuing to grow. And last week, we saw the gospel go to two people who thought, two groups that thought they were just beyond the gospel, that they were cut off from the Lord. And last week, God sent Philip to go and begin reconciling these people back to God. In the midst of this continued movement of the church, this continued growth in the midst of struggle, this is where we pick up the story. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Says this, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, something you need to understand if you want to understand the power of Saul's conversion, the first thing you need to know is the depths of Saul's hatred. If you want to have a deep and great understanding of the power of Saul's conversion, you need to make sure you understand the depths of Saul's hatred for the church, for Christians, and for Jesus. Look what it says again. Now Saul says, breathing threats and murder. And that phrase, breathing threats and murder, it means that Saul is someone who lives for this. Man, this was fulfilling to him. This oppression and murder, man, it sustained him. It gave him life. It gave him purpose. This wasn't someone who was begrudgingly going after Christians. Man, this fed him. He breathed it as if it brought him life. There's also a word in there that says still breathing threats and murder. As if after a period of time, he continued to go. He continued to move. If you have your Bibles open to Acts 9, let's flip over one page to Acts chapter 8. Let me remind you of how Luke, the author of Acts, described this time, this, this movement of Saul. I'm in the middle of verse 8. It says, on that day, meaning the day that Stephen was put to death, on that day a great persecution began against the church of Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but, huge biblical but right there, but Saul, remember that, began ravaging the church. That term ravage, like it's intense. It involves physical violence. I mean, Saul began ravaging the church from that day of Stephen's death. Man, Saul just took it up a notch. Listen to how he described his heart years later when he wrote to the, book, uh, to the church of Galatia. He wrote this, he said, you've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. This is, Paul, this is Saul's words. This is Paul's words describing his own heart. I persecuted the church beyond measure. A term used to describe something to an extraordinary degree. He persecuted to an extreme level, to the point where most people in his own time period were thinking he was going overboard. 
So I said, I went beyond measure. If you want to understand the power of Saul's conversion, you have to understand the depths of his hatred. He lived for this. It fulfilled him. It was as if he hungered for it. And the persecution of Christians fed him. It was this hatred that led him to take some pretty extraordinary steps. Back in Acts chapter 9, we see that he, uh, he asked for letters from authority, right? He went to the high priest. If you remember, Saul was a Pharisee. The rival group was the Sadducees. The Pharisees were larger in number, but Sadducees had control of the, of the Sanhedrin. They were really the source of political and religious control. But when it came to persecuting Christians, this was beyond politics. This is beyond rivalry. Saul goes to the high priest of Sadducee, colludes with the rival group. Not only that, he went against the counsel of his mentor, Gamaliel. You remember that? Let's go back to Acts chapter 5. Again, just a few pages to the left. If you remember, this is the beginning of that church movement. They were growing. God was adding to their numbers daily. The Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, trying to figure out what do we do with this group? And then Gamaliel, one of the most respected biblical scholars and teachers of his day, the mentor of the Apostle Paul, of Saul, of this man we're discussing. Listen to Gamaliel's recommendation. Verse 34, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council, gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said of them, men of Israel, take care what you purpose, propose to do for, with these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men joined up with them, but he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But, huge biblical but right there, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. Gamaliel says, look, this, this whole process of men, power structures of men, they rise, they fall. Countries rise and they fall. Fads rise and they fall. But the plans of God, they're eternal. They're unstoppable. Gamaliel says, hey, take a step back. If Jesus is truly dead, this thing will falter. If Jesus is alive, then we may find ourselves in opposition to God. Let me show you one more point of view describing Saul's heart. Again, it's, these are the words of Saul in Acts 26. This is all saying, he says, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme and being furiously enraged with them. I kept pursuing them even to foreign city, cities. And if you want to understand the power of Saul's conversion, you need to understand the depths of his hatred. Saul is callous, self-righteous, and a bigoted murderer set on a full-scale inquisition who is fed, fulfilled, excited by his persecution 
of the church. Man, listen, if there's anyone beyond the saving power of Jesus Christ, it's Saul. If there's anyone who's too broken for the gospel, it's Saul. That's what I love about this story. It's because even Saul wasn't outside of the power of Jesus' pursuit. Even Saul wasn't outside. This guy who hungered and thrived and lived on the persecution of Christ wasn't outside of his power. Let's keep reading the story. Acts chapter 9, now I'm in verse 3. Look at the power of Jesus' pursuit and this powerful confrontation is the first thing we see. Verse 3, as he was traveling, it happened. I just hit pause there for a minute because I, I love that term, it happened. Right? Like Saul, like Luke is saying, look, this actually happened. This is not an exaggeration. This is not an embellishment. Like this actually occurred. Luke is saying, don't miss this. This is bananas. Don't miss what happened. This actually happened. As he was traveling, it happened. This actually occurred that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly, out of nowhere, no one was expecting this. This is outside of everyone's expectation. Man, if God was going to do anything, he'd make Saul a grease spot on the road to Damascus. This is outside of what anyone was expecting. And suddenly, out of nowhere, a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground. A flash of light. We're like, Brian, what, what's that flash of light? Like, what was that? Most believe that's what's called the Shekinah glory from the Old Testament. If you remember, the glory of God was what guided the Israelites through the desert. It's a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. It's the kind of glory that when the glory of God fell on Mount Sinai, there's this deafening sound that consumed the mountaintop like fire and it just glowed and the people standing aback what had appeared to them is just this mountaintop just consumed with fire. It's this glory of God that filled the tabernacle that caused Moses to have to cover his face because after, after interacting in the midst of the glory of God, his face glowed and freaked everyone out. I mean, most people believe this was, this was the glory of God that just flashed. It says, after this glory of God, he fell. And again, people feel like, oh, it, like something happened that blew him off his horse. That term fell actually means as a result of the glory of God, Saul prostrated himself on the ground. Like what happened? This flash of the glory of God didn't knock Saul over. This flash of the glory of God caused Saul to just fall prostrate on the ground. Like it fought him. He recognized. There's no mistaking the glory of God. And Saul recognized it. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice. Now I'm back in the text, verse 4. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And again, I want to draw your attention. If Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Now, hey, why are you chasing down my people? Why are you attacking my church? Who do you think you are going after my movement when the gates of hell won't prevail against it? Who do you think you are? That's not what Jesus said. So why are you persecuting me? See, Jesus takes all this personal. When you attack a member of his body, you attack Christ. When you attack a movement of his people, you attack Christ. I was thinking this week, this might be a good reminder for you and I as well as we criticize. As we criticize other Christians, as we criticize other churches, as we criticize other pastors... 
Let's be very careful. Because you're, you're interacting with God's people. Look at Saul's response. Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up, enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless. Man, can you imagine? I mean, you're with Saul. This is the baddest dude in town at the time. A man who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. You just get this idea that poor Saul, man, his world was rocked. First of all, he thought Jesus was dead. And Jesus is not. First thing that rocked his world, he thought Jesus was dead. And all of a sudden, nope, Jesus is alive. And that meant that Saul found himself in opposition to God. Saul's position from a position of assumed authority and righteousness based on the law suddenly crumbled in that instant, in that moment. I was thinking this week, I wonder if Saul was wrestling with this question, is there anyone too broken for salvation? Is there anyone too lost? Saul was blind. He's going to be a pariah of society. He was persecuting. He was feeding on. He was getting fulfillment from persecuting the movement of God. He couldn't eat or drink. He was a wreck. I wonder if Paul is wrestling with, am I too far lost? Is there any hope for me? Listen to how he wrote his heart to his protege, Timothy, years later, 1 Timothy 1, 15. He says this, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Look what he says, among whom I'm the foremost of all. Man, I am the worst. Yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And this encounter with Jesus rocked Saul's world. But it wasn't, Saul wasn't the only one. Saul was the only one impacted by this conversion. See, we look at the power of Jesus' pursuit. Not only was Saul surprised by the powerful confrontation, but a great Christian man was surprised by this powerful confrontation as well. Let's keep reading. We're introduced in verse 10 to another man. And there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Ananias the Lord said to him, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Big biblical but right there, first word of verse 13. But I love this passage because Ananias is saying what everyone else is thinking. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Hey, Jesus, problem. I've heard of Saul. He's too broken. Hey, Jesus, I heard of Saul. He's too far gone. Jesus, I've heard of Saul. Your plan's not going to work on him. He feeds on persecuting you. 
Lest you think that Ananias is just some schmuck of a Christian who doesn't have any spiritual depth. Look how he's described in Acts 22:12, A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. Man, this was a solid man. A good man who loved Jesus, versed in the movement of God. Jesus shows up, Ananias, Jesus, uh, Ananias, not freaked out, but that Jesus calling to him, right? If Jesus said to me, hey, Brian, I'd freak. Ananias is like, hey, no biggie. Yeah, Jesus, what's up? Hey, I want you to go meet Saul. All of a sudden, Ananias has a problem. Nope. I think you missed this one, Jesus. You've been gone too long. I don't know if you know, this guy, too broken. Too lost, too far off. Look at God's response. Jesus said this, another big biblical but, right? Like we just keep changing directions like this. This is rocking everyone's world, I'm telling you. But the Lord said to him, go. I'm done talking about this. There's a directive. Go, get. Why? For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. A simple response. Jesus said, hey, Ananias, you're a good dude who loves me. Go talk to Saul. Ananias like, I don't think so. This guy's too broken. It's a waste of my time. Jesus says, no, he's not. Why? Look what it says. He's a chosen instrument of mine. Chosen instrument, hand-selected vessel of Jesus, personally picked by God to be a witness to everyone. Look what he says. He's going to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. Like I chose this guy, he's going to be incredible. Not only is he not too far gone for salvation, I'm going to pluck him from his precarious position transform his life and empower him for something incredible. And just so you know, God's done the same thing for you. You know that. Put your thumb in Acts. We're going to flip around for a little bit. We're going to go to the right of your Bible, to the book of 1 Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. And again, those of you who are new with us, we do this at time. People ask me, how come sometimes you put verses on the screen, sometimes we flip? I don't know. <laughs> In the interest of time, we can't just go through our Bibles, all of it. But I want you to go. There are certain passages I just want you to see. And if you're someone who writes in your Bible like I do, I want you to be able to have a moment to really underline and mark these passages so you can go back later in time chapter 1, verse 2, look at what Paul says. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness and hope. And our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God. I mean, how does he know that they're going to be able to do all that? That sounds amazing. Constantly. Bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor and love, your steadfastness of hope. I mean, who doesn't want to go to that church? They're incredible. And look what empowers them. Knowing, brethren, beloved God, his choice of you. Hand-selected. Hand-picked. Man, I remember there was such a time I was going through the church feeling like I just, you know, that last one picked in the team. Man, that was me. First basketball game at the park, I was picked first because I was tall. Second basketball game, I was picked last because I am a waste of height when it comes to a basketball game. <laughs> and I would just end up being lumped on some team. Man, I feel like some Christians think that they're just kind of, well, someone's got to take them. Jesus did. Man, I want you to know you've been picked, hand selected, chosen by God, plucked out of your precarious position of sin, have your life transformed, 
and empowered the Holy Spirit to be an instrument of God. Man, why is the conversion of Saul so important? Because I think it gives hope to you and I that if Jesus can do this in Saul, why not you? Unless you think you're the only one who struggles with this aspect. Saul, Saul thought he was too broken for God. Ananias, a good man who loved Jesus, well-respected in the movement, he thought Saul was too broken for God. Jesus said, nope. I'm going to hand-select him. Transform his life. Fill him with my spirit. Look what I can do. To Ananias' credit, he didn't argue anymore. I, I think I probably would have argued some more. After verse 16, verse 17, Ananias departed and entered the house. So we went. Good for you, Ananias. Ananias departed, entered the house after laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to change your life today. Through the power of God, he's going to change your life today and empower your future. Verse 18, and immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight. He got up and was baptized and took food and was strengthened. And from that day, something changed in the life of Saul. I can imagine. They're like, Brian, do you think he was really converted or just, did he just want his sight back? I mean, is this legit? Is this real? Can we count on this? I mean, did something really change in Paul's and Saul's life? Let's go back. Put your thumb again in Acts chapter 9. Let's flip over to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Look how Paul describes his transformation. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. He said, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I for more. Circumcised on the eighth day, nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, law, Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Man, I was checking all the boxes. I was on fast track to be a respected leader of culture. Huge, big biblical but. Verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me before, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. My worldly greatness, my personal righteousness, everything that fed me before, it's all garbage now. More than that, I count all things to be loss. Everything. Everything to be loss. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So I was like, I, I was the best at earning righteousness. All that's garbage in comparison to what Jesus just gave me on that road. Now, you want to understand the powerful conversion of Saul. First thing you need to understand is the depths of Saul's hatred. Second thing you need to understand is the power of Jesus' pursuit. The way he confronted Saul and the way he reminded Ananias and you and I that no one is too broken for the gospel. Third thing before we wrap up last thing I want you to see is the impact of the gospel then. So what happened after this? 
what happened as a result of this movement, of this confrontation, of this reminder. Let's keep going. End of verse 19. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. I mean overnight. Yesterday he was in here ready to draw people out to prison. A week later, he's in those synagogues. He's the son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he whose Jerusalem destroyed those who called in his name, who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? Look at verse 22. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. First thing we see, the impact of the gospel, it's in the life of Saul. That phrase, he kept increasing in strength. Man, Paul kept growing in his reflection of Jesus. He kept changing into a man that is a pure reflection of the grace in Jesus, not just the laws of God. Man, Saul just continued to grow and thrive, transform by renewing his mind. He kept increasing. Look what he said in Colossians. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of the steadfastness of patience joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's Paul saying, I want you to get strengthened too. Man, I pray. So I want to take a moment. This is an important characteristic of our church. And we believe we're even more committed now than ever. That just coming on a Sunday morning is not where you're going to be strengthened. So we have small groups. Sunday classes, men's women's Bible study groups, Saturday men's accountability groups. We, we have a ton of groups that are designed and intended to strengthen you in your faith in Christ, your walk with the Lord. And we're so committed to this that we added a staff position where her entire job is to help you connect in a group where you can be strengthened in your faith. I want to introduce Patty Placentia. Here's a picture of her family. Patty is someone that I've been watching for months. And I, if you don't know Patty, you're unique. <laughs> because what she does in her normal life, she just pursued people. She just met people and helped them find a place to connect at the church. She has this perfect gift of sweetness and kindness and relentless pursuit. She is unwavering in her passion to connect you. But she's also super kind, so don't be afraid of her. Her role is to help you find a place to connect. She's director of engagement connection. She's been going for a week, so give her a little bit of time. But if you see this sweet lady coming up to you, reaching out to you, calling you, please don't run away. <laughs> she is our gift to you because we truly believe that everyone needs to be connected. A small group, Sunday school class, men's, women's Bible study. If there's something else we need to start, Patty will find out. Help us do it. Why? Because we believe what God did in Saul, he wants to do in you. You'd be strengthened. Impact of the gospel. First, we see it in the life of Saul. It also impacts the lives of others. Look, look back at verse 21. All those hearing what Paul was saying, they were continued to be amazed. That term amazed means they're astonished, astounded. This thing that God was doing in Saul blew their minds. Like there were some Christians who saw what God was doing in Saul and they just loved it. They were excited. It was incredible, but let me show you. There's another group. Verse 23, 
When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night, let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples. Hey, I'm one of you. Big biblical butt right there. But they were afraid of him. Not believing that he was a disciple. This is a group of people in Jerusalem. Man, this was, this was like, they were the first ones. These were the models. They're afraid. It says they did not believe. It means that they did not trust Saul's testimony. They didn't credit God with the power to do it. In those early Christians' minds, Saul was too far gone. He was too broken, too lost. No way. We're not believing it. We're not buying it. Man, that same thing that exists in the church today existed way back then. But just in case you're still wondering if there's someone too broken, too lost, let me remind you what John said in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus restored a tax collector, a prostitute, a Christian killer, a Jesus denier, an adulterous and murderous king. The list goes on and on and on. The grace of God, the mercy of God, the power of Jesus, the truth of the gospel. Why is this conversion of Saul so important? Because it reminds us of the power of the gospel and the impact it can have. One last group it impacted. Look at verse 31. As a result of what God did in Saul, verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee, Samaria, enjoyed peace and being built up. Going on in the fear of the Lord and in comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. When people saw what Jesus did in the life of Saul, it empowered their ministry and it grew even more. When all is said and done, I love how Paul summarizes his heart for the gospel this way, Romans 1. That's not it. There we go. Romans 1. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Man, you ever know, ever wonder why Paul could just say that with such confidence? I believe in the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. It saved me. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the foremost sinner. Man, I was the farthest away from God ever. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. My question, I have two questions, I guess, at the end for you. As we're reminded of Saul's conversion, can I ask you, have you had a conversion like that? where you're confronted with the reality of your brokenness. Where you are floored to the ground in recognition of the glory of God and it just broke you. Where you recognize that you're doomed. Where you're in opposition to God and, and the weight and the pressure and the guilt and the fear and the shame of that. And then to recognize that salvation is just a gift that all of your sin can be wiped clean. That you're no longer judged and buried in the depths of your sin. That you can be plucked from that life, restored to God, and, and empowered with His glory to be an instrument in reflection to others. Have you had a conversion like that? That moment 
where you recognized that the entirety of your life is now going to be different because of that moment. If you haven't had that, I just want to encourage you, perhaps today is that day. Where you can be reconciled with God and empowered to be an instrument for those around you. If you haven't had a conversion like that, salvation isn't just an agreement in your mind. It's this change of heart, this renewment in life. I believe there's a lot of people who go to church who agree with everything in their head, but see, Jesus says there's going to be this time where people come and say, Lord, Lord, let me in, and Jesus is going to say, I, I don't know you. He's going to say, What? I've done all this stuff in your name. Like I showed up at church. I worked at VBS. He just says, depart from me. Child of lawlessness. Why? How? Is it possible that people know of Jesus, but they, they don't have that moment where they allow him to change their life? where they let go of their sin, their guilt, and their shame, their brokenness, and allow Jesus to own their life from this day forward. In just a moment, we're gonna pray and give you a chance to do that. But before we go, I know there's many of you who say, Brian, I've already had that, man. I've already had that. I'm good. I can't wait for Jesus to return. Every day I wake up, please, Jesus, is now the day. This world's nuts. These people are too broken. Jesus, time to come back. We're in kooky California. It's time to get out. I want to ask you to perfectly consider who's one person that you really believe in your head is too far broken for Jesus. And I want to empower you, however pastors do that, to go get them. There's no child too broken for the gospel of Christ. There's no grandchild too far gone for Jesus to save. There's no government too broken for God to not impact. There's no community so bananas that the gospel can't change it. One person, one person that in your callous heart, you're like, Nope, they're gone. I gave them three chances. I gave them seven chances. One person you think is too broken for salvation. And I challenge you. Spend this week praying for them and see if maybe you might be the instrument to bring them to their knees before the Lord. Let's pray. Ah, Jesus, we come before you today. God, some of us, some of us, because we do, we believe in your power. God, we recognize your power to save because you saved us. You have forgiven our sins. You have transformed our lives. God, you have empowered us to be a reflection of your glory. But God, there's many of us, we got to confess to you, God, there's many of us who think that the people who are more broken than us are too far gone. That, God, it's easy for us to just give up on others and, and we just feel like maybe they've rejected you and you've rejected them. So, God, I pray. God, give us one name. One name of someone. One name of someone, God, that you can give us just like you gave Ananias. One name. God, that we think you're nuts but we'll do it because we believe in your power. We have confidence in your power to save. God, if there's someone here today who has yet to have that powerful conversion, that moment of life where they just allow you to transform their life from the, first, from the core of their being, God, I pray that you open their eyes and allow them to see you as I do today.
God, hear their cries to you as they just lift their burdens, their brokenness, their fear, their anger, their hatred, their bitterness, their guilt, their shame. And Jesus says they just ask for a new start, a new beginning, to be reconciled with you, transformed in your image, strengthened in their heart, and used for your glory. God, as they cry out to you, Jesus, will you hear them as you promised? God, wash their sins away. Draw them close to you and transform their life even today. God, and give them your spirit just as you have promised to empower their new direction, to use them for your glory. Now, God, we continue to pray as you taught us. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are the only one who can do this. God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We're tired of fighting for our kingdom. God, we want yours. Use us. And give us what we need. Help us to be content with what you provide. God, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, protect us from doing something stupid that would jeopardize our lives, our homes, our testimony for you. And then, God, help us and give us faith and confidence that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.